Welcome to Breaking Down Barriers, a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Here is your host, David Ponraj, founder and CEO of Economic Impact Catalyst. Johnny, welcome to Breaking Down Barriers. Thank you for having me. So tell us your origin story. What got you into this space? Well, I, I wish people listening could look at me because they would go, oh, that's what got him into this space. We're going to so, get some pictures to make yeah. sure that that happens. So every time I meet someone in a conference setting, they look at me. So if, if you can't see me right now, I'm covered head to toe in tattoos. And people look at me and say, this guy went through something. So <laughs> that much is true. Um, and I, I always want to say that I never set out to start a company and I never set out to work in the mental health field. So neither of those things were interesting to me. Um, what was interesting was how the brain works. So I grew up in an abusive environment, drugs and alcohol abound, and no one in my family really understood or believed in quote unquote mental health. It was a very rub some dirt in it type of family. and. I was growing up and um, experiencing these childhood traumas and then being told to like tough it out and push through it. And so that's what I tried to do. And eventually my symptoms got so severe. So I was living with OCD and uh, bipolar and schizophrenia. So you got a picture, I'm, I'm hallucinating and punching holes in the wall and my family is like, just figure it out. <laughs> how, how old were you? <laughs> I was, when I started exhibiting symptoms, I was, a toddler. So this was before wow. before elementary school. And then it got really debilitating to the point where it was difficult to speak in complete sentences or make eye contact around middle school. And that pervaded until my mid-20s. So there's a really solid, like, um, probably 20-year period of, like, not casual, um, quote, OCD, like, I need to straighten the painting, but debilitating mental illness, multiple diagnoses. And I think what really made me wind up focusing so much on learning how the brain works, because I, I began treatment in high school and I started taking psychology courses in high school. So this is in answer to your original question. I had experienced so much pain and yet I didn't want to go to therapy. I didn't want to take medication. So it's almost like imagine you have a friend who has a splinter and they keep complaining about the splinter. It hurts them so much. And you're like, have you tried pulling it out? And they're like, no, that would hurt. So that was me for so long that when I started learning about the brain, I thought, what keeps people from getting better, even though they know that not doing anything will only make it worse? Is it a, a stigma question? Is it, is it uh, our inertia to get help? Why don't people, uh, and I know it's a spectrum of, like, mm -hmm. I need therapy. I know I need therapy. Mm -hmm. And I've tried it. And sometimes it's hard because I feel like I can't break through to the therapist, right? Because I need therapy for a number of reasons. But the most being that you are in an extremely intense environment, yeah. right, as a startup. And you're like, you know, extreme highs, extreme lows. So wh why don't we naturally tend to seek this out? So two things, I think... Number one, we have difficulty in making that first attempt. So on average, it takes 11 years between the onset of symptoms, so like depressive symptoms, for example, and actually engaging with care. 
So imagine having a splinter for 11 years, right? And just walking on it. It's stuck in your toe, walking on ow, 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 <laughs> for a decade. So that's, that's average in America. And in large part, that's because we have historically had a culture where we encourage people to tough it out and push through and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And so part of it is culturally, we, we worry about what other people will think, but more importantly, we judge ourselves. We think, man, if I, if I book a therapy session, what does that say about me, right? So part of it is cultural, and some of that cultural culture is internal. But the other side is some of us have one bad experience with a therapist, and we say therapy isn't for me. Or we have one bad experience with a mental health tool or with meditation or with a book or a podcast or whatever. And I always, the example I always use is imagine if you tried um, really, really spicy Indian food, spicy, spicy, <laughs> spicy, spicy Indian food, and it burned your tongue and you thought, food isn't for me. I'm just not going to eat anymore. I'm not a food person. You would die. Yeah. yeah. The, the real appropriate response is that dish was much too spicy. Yeah. I will go out of my way to make sure the next time I try food, I check with the yeah. person to make sure that it's not that spicy. So yeah. there's, number one, we're scared to try it at all because of what we think and what other people might think. And then when we do try it, we're almost looking for an excuse to disqualify ourselves and say, yeah, I tried therapy and it's not for me. Wow. So... Many people experience these kinds of challenges, but very few people try to do something about it, right? So not only did you get help for yourself, at what point did it occur to you that, wow, this is something that can actually have a global audience, right? This is something that we can actually uh, not just make money out of, but also do good. At what point did that light bulb go off for you? So there were two inflection points that I think of. The first is, and this is... <laughs> I love this story because it's really important that people understand what I look like for this story to make sense. So okay, I will describe you once more. <laughs> so Johnny's got head to toe in tattoos. He's got two earrings. He's got a cross next to his eye. He's wearing goodbye negative thoughts as a shirt, right? And you've got really cool sneakers. Tell me about your sneakers. <laughs> I don't even know. It I know you have like, a good collection, right? Yeah, I'm a big sneaker nerd. And these... They look like they're dipped in like plasma or something. They're like this shiny blue green. They're beautiful. Let me, let me just say this. First of all, thank you. And second of all, I never have trouble uh, starting conversations at conferences because people are like, "What the heck is this guy doing here?" <laughs> yeah. So, and especially at the time, keep in mind the this story takes place in college. In college, I was doing bodybuilding, not weightlifting. Bodybuilding. So I was huge i mean like gigantic arms and shoulders yeah. super tattooed and i would wear these death metal t-shirts all the time so like all black yeah. so picture this like super buff tattooed all black somebody clothing. would be scared of you're like do yes. not, yeah do not want to meet somewhere like in a dark alley and i love <laughs> that you said that because that's the setting of this story oh so it's in yeah. a dark alley in downtown orlando Okay. Um, I used to teach improv comedy, and I, uh, a local comedian in Orlando had died by suicide. And the local comedy community all teamed up to throw this Orlando Indie Comedy Festival. And we had a bunch of comedians, like some comedians flew in to play. We had a bunch of local comedians participate. It was this like multi-day, I mean, it took probably a whole year to plan. 
and it was a fundraiser for suicide prevention. And we donated the check, this big novelty check, which was probably not even for all that much money, but it was a bunch of college kids yeah. trying to do yeah. something. Yeah. So we, on stage, it's like 1.30 in the morning when the comedy festival is over. Yeah. And so one of the comedians goes up on stage and presents this uh, giant novelty check to NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Okay. And she, the, the president of the local chapter accepts the check and she says, hey, thank you so much for doing this. It means a lot. And then if you don't know NAMI, here's what we do. And she was mentioning we do advocacy and we, we do peer support, which means that people with lived experience with mental illness can help other people through what they're going through. And when I heard that, I was like, I didn't know I could do that. Like I thought I had to be a doctor or have some special, like, you know, I'm, I'm 19 years old. How on earth can I help anybody? And she said, that's kind of what we do. So I didn't get to talk to her all night. So she's, she leads and starts, she leaves backstage and starts walking to her car with this giant novelty check. And I chase her down at 1.30 in the morning in downtown Orlando. She's carrying money, basically, this giant <laughs> check. Like, I'm going to rob her in the streets. And I was like, hey, hey, lady. And I finally catch up to her, and she's... <laughs> she's probably scared. Maybe yeah. a little spooked. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and then I'm sure this calmed her down. I go, I have schizophrenia. And she's like, great. <laughs> like, what's about to happen? And I was like, I don't know what I can do to help, yeah. but I want to. Like, what I've been through, I didn't know I could do anything with it. And if you're saying that I can do, I will go file papers yeah. at your nonprofit. Yeah. I will help set appointments for you. I'll do whatever. I just want to use what I've been through for something because if I don't use it for somebody, then it was for nothing. Like, I have to take this bad that happened to me and turn it into something good. So that was the first thing that really clicked for me. And then the second thing was when I started working on the beta version of Cope Notes, it was called Not a Therapist. And the whole point was yeah. like, if you're not comfortable meeting yeah. with a therapist, yeah. you can use Cope Notes. And I expected maybe a couple people to use it. And I remember we got to a point where each session was an hour. So it was like chat with a peer. And we got to a point where I had more hours of sessions booked with people than I had hours at my actual job. So I'd, I worked, so this was one-on-one -on -one sessions? Yes. So I was wow. 50 hours, if you can imagine this, I was 50 hours a week at an advertising agency for my full-time job. Yeah. And then I remember hitting 51 hours a week with, uh, with not a therapist and going, I need to How did they find pick. you? Um, I was touring in a band at the time. I still play now, just not as much. We don't tour as much. But um, at the time, I was touring, and I was in a different city every night, and people who had seen me on tour maybe a year or five years prior, they would say, you know, you seem different. Like, you seem like you're making some progress. You're making some eye contact. You're speaking in complete sentences. You seem a little lighter. Like, what's going on? And I would tell them... Uh, you know, therapy, medication, journaling, I listen to sermons, I listen to podcasts, I read books, and they go, ugh, don't, ugh, yeah. I don't want to hear any yeah. of that. It's kind of yeah. like if you have a friend who loses weight, and you're like, how do you do it? And they say, diet and exercise, and you're like, ugh, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't want to yeah. hear it. I need that secret built. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I need, yeah, not, yeah. not diet and exercise. So yeah. on tour, I was going through these cities, and I'd meet, you know, a couple hundred people every night, 
And I was learning that these people really weren't interested in any of the things that were helping me. And I was like, man, how do I give them a, a lighter, smaller lift, easier thing to start with so that eventually if they need those deeper levels of care that they'll feel comfortable using them. So a lot of people found out about Not A Therapist through tour because I was in a different city every night and I just had this little uh, three by five index card on the merch table that said, I can't remember what it said, but it said it had our website yeah. on it and people would just go and book appointments. It was totally free, uh, which ruined my life because I was not compensated for working yeah. full time, yeah. which would become a theme once I started my business. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> wow, that, that's so brilliant. Uh, I'm going to fast forward and then come back because there's so many things, but I'm curious about somebody who has, well, either of your parents business owners? Um... I don't know. My mom, technically, so she's a stenographer that be might like a, technically be her yeah, own okay. company, you know? Yeah, but she's like a specialist. Like, they, they book her to show up in court, Correct. right? And, yeah. Okay. The reason I'm asking is, if you didn't come from, like, a business background, didn't go to business school, etc., what's been, like, the one biggest, and I'm sure there's lots of lessons, but, like, the one biggest aha moment for you uh, after you've hit your five years, you look back and say, wow, like... Me, I'm a second-time entrepreneur, so mm -hmm. I lived yeah. that once. It's super painful, and so I came <laughs> into this saying, you know, I I know what I will not do, right? right. As a first-time entrepreneur who's actually made it and is successful, like, what is that one lesson learned? Because a lot of our practitioners teach entrepreneurship, work with entrepreneurs, and we have entrepreneurs who also listen. So first, I want to acknowledge that you said an entrepreneur who has made it and is successful. I, I pray to God that I can think of myself through that light. You really have. I'll tell you, the SBA statistics show that 50% of businesses don't make it to five years. Yeah. And I was at the five-year celebration and all the wonderful things I was hearing. I mean, that's huge. Like, you know, it's when you're in the moment, it's very hard to recognize success. Yeah. Because you've set all these really lofty plans for yourself. Oh, yeah. But when you look at the baseline, <laughs> you're yeah. better than 50% of people that ever start, right? And every year from now on, you're going to get another 10% better than every other people that start just from the fact that you've been around for six years. That itself, yeah. right? To be operational, to do payroll, the, the fundamentals of business, that's really, really hard. Yeah. I also think that. Like, so you and I are extraordinarily ambitious people. So we'll be like, oh, what's our revenue goal? It's like $100 million yeah. or whatever. We just say like really, really lofty goals. And it, by virtue of setting goals that big, yeah. you almost make a habit of falling short of those. And you have to make peace um, with each year falling short of your revenue goal. Yeah. But by doing so, you're doing triple what yeah. your revenue would have been if yeah. you set a lower goal. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah, it's like you have your benchmark, but then you have the, the normal benchmark of businesses, yeah. and you're like you're exceeding every expectation there, right? I think in answer to your question, two things jump out at me. The first is you don't need what you think you need to start a business. So I always thought, oh, I need a bunch of funding or I need uh, an MBA or something. Um, I need friends in high places. And really, <laughs> at least in my experience, what I actually needed was this sort of like maniacal, like I will die on this hill. Yeah. Like I will either build this thing or I will fail building this thing. And I have complete peace in failing building this thing because I would have no peace at all and never trying to build mm -hmm. it, you know? So part of it is yeah. like you need this 
what I thought I needed was actual business acumen, but what looking back, what actually helped me was the curiosity and determination to gain the business acumen while building the business, you know? Yeah. yeah. They always say that that you only regret the things you don't do. Yeah. You never regret the things you do. Yeah. Because when you do something, you're going to learn no matter what the outcome is. Yeah. Right? So let's go back now. So you basically uh, had created this uh, Not A Therapist site and they're getting bookings. At what point did you then say, wait a second, like this can be a real business? And then what did you go do to start to kind of build that fundamentals of Coke Notes from there? So at first, I... I remember thinking what would happen if I charged mm-hmm. money yeah. because I can't do my full-time business and this. And also I was trying to recruit volunteers to mm-hmm. help me because I was doing it as a volunteer. It was going to be a nonprofit mm-hmm. and nobody would work for free. Can you believe that? What's wrong with people? <laughs> um, and at the time everyone is saying, well, if you really cared about what you were doing, you'd do it for free. If you really cared, you wouldn't charge. And I, I took that and internalized it and then almost ruined my life by dedicating myself so much to something that was not compensating me. And it, I mean, it, it really affected my... So basically what they were saying was not, if you really cared, you wouldn't do it for free. If you really cared, you wouldn't charge me, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't that they don't want you to make money. They don't feel like they should pay for something that's so noble that can change people's lives. Yeah, which is funny because <laughs> I've never like walked into a Home Depot and been like, Oh, if you really cared about screws, you would give me these screws for free. They'd be like, what are you talking about? Like yeah. making yeah. those screws costs money. Like yeah. you need to give us money so yeah. that we can have a store. I've noticed that it's it's very common in giving professions to be like, how come I don't get this for free? And I under while I understand the sentiment, totally, I totally understand. I wish therapy was free for everybody. I wish everything was free. I wish I could walk into a Lamborghini dealership and be like, that one. And they're like, go ahead, sir, take it. I, I, I totally empathize with it, but it was so affecting me. And it was making me disdain my work because yeah. I was like, this work is robbing me of yeah. financial security and yeah. peace. So I remember thinking, what if I charge? And I, I made it a uh, name your price. And everyone named the price $0. Because there was no minimum. So I was like, well, that didn't work. And then I was trying to hire volunteers and nobody would work for free. And I remember doing some math and thinking, okay, if people are paying $10 a month for um, UFIT or Planet Fitness, if they'll pay $10 a month to keep their, their their body in good shape, and if they'll pay $10 a month for Netflix to like numb their brain, would they spend $10 a month? to take care of it. I started doing some math and I saw the average therapy session is around $150 in the US for one session. I thought, hmm, what if we could offer a whole year of support for less than the price of one therapy session? Like how compelling of a value prop is that? And I did some math and thought, wow, if we get, I can't remember what the math was, but I was like, if we get a few hundred subscribers, then I can take home enough money to pay all, like my rent and all this stuff. So I said, you know what? I'm going to be noble and I'll say, we'll switch to $10 a month and I will not take a paycheck for the first year. And I thought, I'm so noble to not take a paycheck for a whole year. That's how much I really care. And then fast forward, I didn't take my first paycheck until three and a half years wow. into building it. It was tough. It was like part of it was I had learned 
this, I had adhered to this narrative that if I really cared, I'd do it for free. If I really cared, I'd do it for free. And then there was a point where the company was making like, you know, we'd, we'd close a couple hundred grand in revenue and I would think, well, I can't get any of that. I have to go deploy that. And eventually I was talking to my therapist and he's like, you're going to die <laughs> if you don't start, you know, yeah. adding yourself to payroll. Yeah. And if you talk to a business coach, they would also. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and I had employees at the time too. So you, I'm sure you've heard of the book, Pay Yourself First. And I just was, I was ignoring the, the advice of my therapist and my mentors and, and I paid dearly for it. Yeah. And I, that was one of my lessons from my first business. Mm-hmm. And in this business, um, I tell myself that not only will I pay myself, I'll pay myself a market rate for my yep. service, saying that I need to be able to prove that my t- time is as valuable as my time, not as valuable as how much I can afford to pay me. Yeah. Right? And so that discipline and never thinking about it and just turning it into a W-2, right, like gives me the finance, financial security and also helps me know that that is a mark of success that you're able to earn a living. Mm-hmm. Right, like that you're able to earn a living, which is air quotes uh, for a small business owner is also a very important milestone. That yeah. in my first business, I don't think I paid myself for five years and then we shut it down. Oh, so <laughs> I hadn't made a penny <laughs> in five years and I'd invested like 500,000 in five years, Unreal. right? And but those lessons learned, and that's why I was curious yeah. about your lessons learned because, like, a lot of these things you will never learn in a textbook, they'll say it, but till you do it, oh, yeah. you don't know, you know, you don't have those mental markers for what that pain feels like. I also, one thing that really sticks out in my memory of the last five years is that there is a, there's a level of shamelessness you have to have with um, being a novice. Like you have to be just, you have to, any shame that you feel about inviting yourself to an event or a conference or um, asking somebody a question about an acronym you don't know in the middle of a meeting, like you, you have to put your ego aside. Somebody yeah. said, so I was talking to somebody yesterday and uh, we were at a, the SHRM conference, the HR conference. Okay. And this guy was like talking to me for an hour and he's like, I didn't even know you were the CEO because you're you don't have like this big ego. And I was like, dude, you can't be a founder and have a big ego because nothing will humble you faster than getting into the marketplace and thinking that you know what the marketplace wants and then having the marketplace tell you all the ways that you're wrong. Like you have to really own that perpetual student mindset and not take it personally. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about like your traction, right? So you've gotten... In your a uh, couple years in, you've got Cope Notes, uh, which, by the way, uh, I think that uh, we will put in the show notes. But uh, our participants can go and register their companies, right, mm-hmm. to be able to provide Cope Notes for their employees. Yeah, yeah. So we'll put that in the show notes. But talk to me about like how did you come? How did you figure out the enterprise model? Because I think that there is something there uh, that basically you don't have to pay. And you can still have it for free, but the people that care about your mental health can pick up the tab and just yes. like they pay for healthcare, can pay for mental care. Yeah. So this is one of those humble moments where early on I had no enterprise plans. I didn't know what B2B stood for. So I just had, I mean, a, like total novice. I was creating Cope Notes for people like you and me, just individual people. And I remember... 
we got a request from a treatment center um, to support like a, a group of a couple hundred people. And I was like, literally, I can't do that. Like, I don't even know yeah, what I would yeah, need to yeah. do in order to make that happen. And then we got another request for a foster care system. And I was like, oh, this is bigger. And I also can't meet that. Yeah. And then we had a third request. This was in like a month. We had a third request for a school district. And that was for, the first request was for a couple hundred people. Second request was for uh, six or 700 people. And I was like, wow, this is like some pretty legit requests. And then the school district asked, uh, can you support our entire district? And I said, well, how many people are in your school district? And they said, 160,000 students. Wow. And I was like, yes. yes. <laughs> like, I will figure it out. Yeah. I, I don't even know what I would have yeah. to do. Yeah. So I, I hung up that call and was yeah. just like, I think I need to build an enterprise thing because that one deal yeah. would allow me to hire all of the people I need if we could yeah. close that deal. So we spent a couple years building the enterprise solution. What I didn't understand at the time that I understand now is especially in an employee setting. So let's just focus there for a minute. On the employee wellness side, there's things like an EAP, for example. What is that? And employee assistance program. Okay. So this is where uh, you might get like three free therapy sessions through your workplace or something. Okay. So what a lot of people, first of all, three therapy sessions is not enough time. Yeah. So on average, it takes 10 therapy sessions to okay. see positive health outcomes. So a lot of employers are saying, well, we gave you three. Why aren't you better? <laughs> Why are you better? <laughs> because I need seven more. Um, but then yeah. also the other side of that is most people, like 95 plus percent of employees actually don't touch the EAP at all. So employers are saying we're paying for this EAP. We want people to use it. Um, but really it's kind of checking a box. And what I didn't understand until I started talking to HR people and buyers on the enterprise side was they said, we don't need a therapy solution for our employees. We have one and no one's using it. What we actually need is something small and easy for them to engage with yeah. on a regular basis. Because three sessions with a therapist, most people aren't comfortable booking that. So I thought what enterprise buyers wanted was a better therapy solution and they were like we don't want another one because no one's using the one that we have yeah. that really opened my eyes yeah and so so you had this hundred and sixty thousand uh person uh opportunity where they could offer this to their students so how did you go about then building it so you said it took you two years what what did you do what did you so you realized that essentially you had to create a white labeled version where they could control certain aspects without without altering the algorithms that made it effective. Yeah, the hard part was learning, this is another lesson from the first five years, is learning when to say no yeah. to a feature. Yeah. Because we, so in the first, let's say two years that we were working on the enterprise solution, um, all of these people would say, I want this feature and this feature, and they're big enterprise buyers that hadn't paid us. Yeah. So we focus all this time and energy on building out these enterprise features that they say they want, and then inevitably they're like, oh, I want it to be different, or yeah. I want to change it, yeah. or they say, we're actually not going to buy. And we're like, we spent all this time building it. So the sweet spot became really interviewing each one of our customers and saying, what are the three most important things yeah. that if Coke Notes didn't do this, you yeah. wouldn't buy it? Yeah. 
And those are the only things we're going to optimize for everybody. Yeah. And everything else that you say is important, we'll put on this big wish list. Yeah. And then we get to choose when we build those things. Yeah. So we learned what people, this is maybe the moral of the story, what people ask for is not always what they need. Your job as a salesperson or as a leader is to figure out what they need, even if it's not what they're asking for. Yeah. And so... How do you say no <laughs> to somebody who's like, I've got a $100,000 deal I'm going to write right now. Like, how do you say no knowing that you're actually doing it in their best interest, right? And that's, I think, like a, a skill that, that you develop or a muscle, right? How yeah. do you do that? So on one hand, we, we have, like if someone is saying, I'll pay you first to develop the thing, which literally in our entire existence has never happened, um, we would probably do it, but what almost always happens is they say, if you build this thing, then we will pay you. And what we typically say is, if Cope Notes is not, as it stands right now as a product, is not scratching the itch that you need scratched, we can either start now with the way it is and build while we're working together. That way your employees are still getting support while we work together on that other feature you want. Or we probably shouldn't start a relationship because there might be someone else out there that already has built yeah. what you're looking for. And it's really tough to say no to bigger deals. Like once you get into six figures, it's like you, you're yeah. as a CEO who's thinking about payroll all the time. You're like, if I close that, I get X yeah. different payroll cycles that I can pay for through that. Yeah. You really have to exercise this foresight that is at the renewal period. So at our one year, at our three year, at our five year with this organization that we're supporting, do we have to have a conversation? Like, with, for example, with my speaking agency, um, I got signed to a speaking agency over a year ago. Congratulations. Uh, Kepler, right? Yes. Congratulations. That's huge. I looked at the list and like, you're like, like in five years, we won't be able to bring you to our office. <laughs> we'll have to, you know, find your tour bus and do it up there. I am. I'm very grateful to be signed by them. And I remember on our first call, so it took 18 months to even get signed by them of like nurturing and meetings and all that stuff. So it took a long time. And then once we did on our first call, all we talked about is how do we make our one year? Cause your first contract is only for a year and they like try you out, you know? So all we focused on is how do we make, you know, April 1st, 2023 so that we don't even need to have a call. We're just like, you good to continue? Yep. You good to continue? Yep. So that's what I think of when I'm serving these enterprise customers is how do we set up this renewal conversation to not even have to happen? Because yeah. we've communicated so well throughout the entire year of serving them and they're so happy and we're so happy that it's literally just a check. That's like a that's check mark. really That's really brilliant, right? Because a lot of the times they're not going to assess value till they have to give you the next paycheck. Mm -hmm. And you want to make that... Uh, yes, and not have to have a call to justify it, yeah. right? Because you'd rather be working on it throughout the year. I think it's the same as um, imagine, I'm sure people on this call or, or people listening right now have been in this situation. I do this a lot because I travel and I run into this challenge where I think, oh, I'll wash, I'll run the dishwasher right before I leave for this trip yeah. or something. Yeah. So I use every last plate, every last yeah. bowl, every last fork, every last spoon. And then 
I need to eat something and I have (laughs) no clean dishes. Yeah. I picture that in an enterprise situation where I say, oh, yes, we'll close this contract right now and make an agreement to to build whatever feature or whatever. But during that year, if they're not happy and we're not happy and we're not actively working on it the whole year, by that one year, we are screwed. Really, your focus should be periodically cleaning. I mean, it's the same principle as we brush our teeth twice a day. Not like before you go to see the dentist. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk. I've got two more questions. One, would love to hear some success stories. I've seen you post success stories. I know uh, this is a really, really impactful. So, you know, you're in such a unique position because you're saving lives and you're building a company to provide uh, a sustainable living for people, right? Like it's two goods. Both are Mm -hmm. equally important, right? If you don't have a way to create sustainable income, then you don't have the way to then care for people. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about like, you know, what keeps you motivated, you know, the success behind uh, not the company, but the success behind the work you do. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> for the for the first however many years that we didn't have any sort of financial markers of success. Yeah. All we had was testimonials. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So we, I built a testimonials page on our website early on so that I could look at it when I wanted to quit. Yeah, because I needed yeah. reminders that this this one story absolutely sticks with me. Um, and it's very dramatic. So grab some tissues if you're listening. So, uh, and not keep in mind, we are not like a suicide prevention company. So I want to preface that. Like we don't just serve people who are living with severe mental illness. We serve people who feel fine. We serve people who are not feeling fine, everybody in between. But this one particular moment in Coconut's history, we had, uh, someone who was, um, someone sent me this story. They had decided that they were going to end their own life. And they, and also just for context, I am a suicide survivor. I care a ton about suicide prevention. I literally gave a Ted talk about the flawed logic behind suicidal ideation. Like this is kind of my world. I'm very passionate about keeping people alive. Uh, My band's last record was called Still Alive. And it's literally about choosing to continue living even when you face suicidal ideation. So this is a huge focus for me personally, even though it's not necessarily the the sole utility of Coke Notes. And I got this message from somebody who had decided that they were going to end their own life. They climbed to the top of a um, a building and they were going to jump. And on the ledge of the building, there was a... Have you ever seen that concrete that has shells in it? Mm-hmm. It's like concrete and rock mixed with seashells yeah and he saw a spiral seashell in the concrete and remembered a coke notes text message that talked something about seashells like i can't remember the text like something about you find what you look for like if you go to the beach and you're not looking for spiral seashells you probably won't see any but if you go with the sole intention of finding them you'll come back with a handful it's really like it's all about focus and something like that probably worded a lot better than I just worded it and he saw that was reminded of the text message sat down on the roof called his mother and he sent me that story when he got out of rehab so he's like still alive after all that and he's like I'm never going to make another attempt on my own life and I was just like what and we've had the same thing happen with 
you know, popcorn or references to things that you and I would think, well, that's pretty innocuous. Like who, who really is a text about popcorn really going to save anybody? But we have hundreds, if not thousands of stories of people who say this text at this time, at this specific moment, stopped me from making the worst decision of my life or people divorcing an abusive partner or we actually, okay, I'll, I'll stop sharing after this because I have a lot. But the other one that makes me really excited is someone sent us a photo, uh, one of those like Sears or Macy's like professional photos that are real cheesy of them with their sibling. And <clears throat> they said, the reason that I'm sending this to you is because a Coke Notes text message encouraged me to reach out to my estranged family member that I had not spoken to in years and years. We had no relationship. We reconnected and took a photo together to send to my parents who don't know that we just talked for the first time in like a decade. And just like, I mean, I get That's goosebumps amazing. thinking wow. about the life change from these little <laughs> two sentence text messages. Wow. So <laughs> this is incredible. Right, so this is uh, something that there is there is almost impossible to put monetary value behind. Mm -hmm. Right, it's the 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 ingenuity of being to being able to send the right message at the right time, and then creating those mental markers that can live on even after they've read that. Yes, yes, right? that's that's incredible. So, of course, then the question is, you know, where do you see this headed? Where do you see yourself? Uh, and give me the the founder's vision, not the practical investor's vision, right? Like, think about like yeah. ten years from now, where do you see Copnotes, and where do you see the mental health industry? So I think um, when I think of Copnotes' future, I think that we are the ultimate gap filler. So an investor might want to hear, "Oh, we're going to build a therapy suite, and we're going to build a meditation module." And no, 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 I I don't want to do any of that. All of those things exist. I have no interest in rebuilding a better version of what already exists. I have an interest in building something that didn't exist. So our focus is how do we, like I said before, an EAP is covering 5% of employees. How do we cover the other 95%? How do we keep people from letting things get so bad that they need to reach out for help? How do we normalize mental health culturally? And in my head, it is making Coke Notes the toothbrush and floss of the mental health industry. Like if I spend the night at your house and I get out my toothbrush, you wouldn't think, ugh, what's he brushing his teeth for? Does he have cavities or something? What's his deal? You would think, well, yeah, of course he's going to brush his teeth. Yeah. It's nighttime. And I want somebody to interact with Coke Notes 10 years from now and think, well, of course I'm going to read my Coke Notes. Of course I'm going to read my text today. Of course I'm going to journal. Like this is... This is how we keep our brains healthy. This is how we prevent things from getting worse. Not just, just like we don't only brush our teeth when our gums are sore or after we eat something super sticky, we brush our, we brush our teeth every day. So that's my vision is for Cope Notes to be integrated into all systems of care, whether you're um, a kid and you get it through your school district, whether you are an adult and you get it through your employer, whether you are... Um, using it through your insurance company, I want it. I want Coke Notes to be that preventative solution. Where, of course, if you really feel like you could benefit from a deeper level of care, all you go for it. We don't do that. There are wonderful companies that do that, and we want to help connect you to them. 
But short of that, for the vast majority of people who aren't comfortable using those things, we want Cope Notes to be that go-to. Do you see a world, uh, and this is like my last question before I want you to tell us how people can find and sign up. Yeah. Um, do you see a world where there can be, and I'm using this only as a, uh, as a noun to kind of describe something. Do you see a world where there's a chat GPT model of this, where I can say, Cope Notes, or we'll call it Johnny, Johnny, I today I'm struggling with being able to communicate with my employees because I have a mental block and I don't feel like I have the empathy I need to be able to relate to where my employees are. And Cope Notes, and Johnny would say, David, I get you. Here's a little tidbit. Did you realize about the world around you or something that mm -hmm. can, can force my brain? Because it's really just about context and and, and repurposing what you already know, right? Because every day I feel differently because of the context and the sounding and, and all the chemicals, the dopamine, everything, right? But can that act as that? So I wanna say yes, because it'd be a heck of a lot easier for us. <laughs> and, and for to, me, like something like me, some, right? Yeah. Like for me, I look at therapy and say, therapy is like just in time helping provide context so that mm. I, can, I can live more wholly and I can live more in the moment. The, the hard part of that is you said it's all about context, which I totally agree with. If I'm using a chat bot, I listen to it differently than if I know the message is written by a real human being with lived experience. Oh, so even if it's like not even a chat bot, like is there a way for me to, for the real person, like be able to communicate in real time to somebody through Cope Notes? Because with therapy, you got to schedule it and you got to mm -hmm. show up and you don't know what you can expect. And, you know, like I haven't done the 10, so I'm at three and I've been burnt. So I think I have to go all the way through 10 mm -hmm. to really experience that. But I love where Cope Notes is headed. And I'm, I'm really asking, like, what does innovation look like around mental health? Yeah. So speaking of real-time communication, Again, in an ideal world, everyone's comfortable having a real-time communication. <laughs> yeah. Many people are not. Yeah. Many, many, many. Even yeah. if it's text or chat, they, I'm not sure if you've ever used like a chat with a therapist or chat with a counselor type of resource, but um, there's, this, there's this thing called emotional dependence. Mm. And it can be fostered in, let's say I'm chatting with a therapist and I, I say something. I say, you know, I'm really nervous because I want to get back with my ex, even though I know that we're not good for each other. And I feel like that's not the right move, but I don't know what to do about it. And then my therapist doesn't respond for a minute. Or I see those dot, <laughs> dot, dot or something. And, and then I begin, I begin, not because of something they did, yeah. I begin to feel judged. I begin to second guess what I say. Yeah. And then I change what I say to be more palatable to yeah. the person I'm communicating with. So I can receive more favorable responses. It's a social behavior. All wow. of us do it. Well, no wonder you're the expert. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, that's, that's so, really, I never thought about it, that there's so many other elements to this that you yeah. have to safeguard against. So this is the real benefit of asynchronous yeah. communication, like us sending an interruption. Yeah. Because, in fact, the ask of somebody to start a conversation yeah. is a big ask. So there's the intervention component, yeah. like making sure we're reaching out to them and then creating an environment where they don't feel that their responses are being read or um, published or judged or anything like that. I do think there's a lot of innovation within Cope Notes roadmap around um, 
like the relevance of messages and the relevance of the timing of the delivery and other interactive components. But we want to be really careful to stay on the right side of we are prevention, intervention, we are daily engagement, we are maintenance. Um, and if you actually want that, like I want to FaceTime with a therapist right now, at least right now, and I'm wrong every day, so we'll see in five years, you yeah. got to check me. Yeah. Um, but right now, I see us passing off those higher level conversations yeah. to real qualified professionals. And to be frank, that will cost 10 times what CopeNotes does. And there's a market for that, and there are people who are willing to pay for that, and that's awesome. The gap that I see CopeNotes filling is for people who don't have time, who don't have money, who aren't comfortable with that deeper level of care, making sure that they have a step below that that feels easier for them. Wow. Uh, we got to do part two of this <laughs> because this is fascinating. So tell, tell me about like where people can find you, can they follow you, how they can sign up for the service. Yes. So copenotes.com will have almost everything you need. It has my TED Talks on there. It has um, uh, a sign up for you so you can actually try it for yourself. We have gift and family subscriptions so you can give them to somebody you love. And then we also have group and enterprise options. So if you're managing a group of 10 people, if you're managing 10 million people, um, and anyone in between, uh, there's information on our website about how we can do that. And then there's also, if you're listening to this and you think, well, is it actually proven to reduce stress and anxiety and depression? Like, how are they backing up these claims? There's also research on our website if you're interested. And if for whatever reason there's an opportunity for me to come speak, this is my favorite part of my job, going to give a keynote or a training to your employees or team. Um, I do it for city and county governments. I do it for for-profit, non-profit, all over the country. Um, if there's an opportunity for me to do that, if you go to johnnycrowder.com, there's information about how you can book me and also clips of me speaking and information about keynotes and trainings that I do. And the last thing I'll say is, um, if you are on social media, my Instagram is at Johnny Crowder loves you because I do. And I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. So if you look up Johnny Crowder, there's an option uh, that has a brain next to it. And that's me. Awesome. Well, it was a pleasure having you today. We're going to have you back and we're going to follow your journey. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, brother. Thanks for listening to this episode of Breaking Down Barriers a podcast about entrepreneurship-led economic development. Special thanks to our renowned guests for joining us. You can find show notes, more episodes, send us ideas, and subscribe to our newsletter on our website, economicimpactcatalyst.com. Breaking Down Barriers is a presentation of Economic Impact Catalyst and is edited by Lauren Bernard. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Breaking Down Barriers available for free wherever you listen to your podcasts.